90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Oh, doing good. Taking a break from the Colorado heat and back in the Oklahoma heat. Well, that seems worse, possibly. It is. It's way worse. <laughs> I feel like I'm drowning in humidity here. It's quite terrible. <laughs> but no, uh, we're in the middle of field camp. The students are off on their regional trip, and I take this opportunity to come home and uh, play with the kids all week. So that's fun. Yeah. You know, it has been really hot out here, and I was complaining about some of this last Saturday and looked up the, the climatology, and we've been as high as 104 Fahrenheit this time of year already. Oh, yeah, so quit your whining, I guess. Yeah, exactly. That's sort of... <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to have the, the last show in our Inner Planets series, and then we're going to take a little bit of a break, have a couple of different shows in between, and then we'll resume and talk about outer planets and other solar bodies. But that means it's time for Mars. Yay. Speaking of extreme climates. Yeah, exactly. So this week, we're really excited to be joined by Dr. Megan Elwood Madden to talk about Mars. Hey, Megan, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So, Megan, could you tell us a little bit about how you got into whatever you would choose to call this field? We've learned that people call it other things, whether you're a geologist, you're an astrogeologist or a planetary geologist. But how, how did you get to where you are now? So I consider myself actually a planetary geochemist. So even <laughs> to add another term into the mix here um, within the broader field of planetary geology. Um, so I kind of got into planetary science um, by accident a little ways ago, um, <laughs> way back when, when I was in graduate school at Virginia Tech, um, my advisor, Bob Bodner, gave me um, kind of a choice of three different projects to work on to learn how to use um, a modeling software package called Geochemist Workbench. And it was totally just to get me started learning how to use the modeling software. And he's like, well, you could model Yucca Mountain, you could model Mars, you could model a mine waste site. And I got to thinking about it, I was like, well, I don't really know that much about Mars, so how about if I try to model Mars? Because that way I'll learn more about Mars and I'll get to learn how to use this modeling software. And in the process of working on learning how to use the software to model Mars, um, I ended up finding that Jerasite, this mineral that's an iron sulfate mineral, was coming out of the model really predictably. So basically what I was trying to do was I was trying to take basalt, which is the dominant rock type on Mars, which is Mars, which is like that black igneous rock. So the same stuff that's forming on Hawaii today, um, literally today, um, is what we find basically all over the place on Mars or most of Mars. Um, so I was looking to see how that black basalt would react with water of different flavors. Okay, so just mm -hmm. pure water or water with um, lots of sulfate in it or water with that's more like seawater and see what kinds of minerals formed. And every time that we took the basalt and we reacted it with water with sulfate in it, um, we formed this mineral, jerosite, which I kept saying, well, why would we find jerosite on Mars? Because that's like an acid mine waste um, mineral that you find at like industrial sites f filled with mine waste. Um, and then literally like within the next two months, the Opportunity rover 
discovered jerosite on the surface <laughs> of Mars. And all of a sudden, I had a career in planetary science. So that's how I got into it. Yeah, uh, I would say that's serendipity, but no, it was opportunity. Excellent. It was opportunity <laughs> knocked. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Um, I mean, but we could also say that Jerocide forms because there are people mining on Mars, right? Like that could be one um, reason. Probably not. But <laughs> <laughs> look, don't kill it. I love Arthur C. Clarke. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the the main like thing of the the project turned out that Jerocide only forms in the um, first like stages of basalt weathering with sulfate. So if it if water sticks along too long, the jerosite is going to disappear. So basically the point of the the project, the main conclusion of the project was that in order to get jerosite on Mars and then to preserve it on Mars, you had to have chemical weathering with sulfate rich water, but the water couldn't stick along around very long. Um, it was kind of an ephemeral system. So so in a in a geologic time scale how long is very long um <laughs> that's an excellent question um so very long i would say um on a geologic perspective is hundreds of thousands to millions of years so yeah so by a geologically short period of time i'm thinking years to decades to maybe centuries but once we get into the thousands to tens of thousands of years, the jerosite would be disappearing. So that's really, I mean, it's a thing that we've kind of gone through a lot on these inner planets, you know, comparison to Earth processes, too. So, I mean, you've got a pretty good laboratory for, you know, you've got to model stuff up there, but you've got a pretty good laboratory for figuring out how long jerosite sticks around here, right? Right, yeah. So we did these laboratory experiments where we actually took jerosite and we reacted it with different flavors of water again. Um, so sulfate-rich waters or chloride-rich waters or just plain old water. Um, and we found that it does react very quickly um, or relatively quickly. And, you know, you'd have lifetimes expected of less than 10,000 years under laboratory conditions. So oftentimes we think of the difference between what we measure in the lab and what we measure in the field as being one to three orders of magnitude difference. So if we're talking about a thousand years in the lab, you might expect it to last maybe a hundred thousand to a million years in the field. Okay. So could you tell us a little bit more about how you design these laboratory experiments? Because uh, there, there's a lot of variables that you have to you know, take a stab at and try to make some controls on. And a lot of these things aren't known in the literature at all. So how do you start with such a large uncertainty matrix and make a reasonable set of experiments that you can perform in a career? Yeah, that's an excellent question, <laughs> especially if you're trying to design experiments that a graduate student can do during a thesis or dissertation period. So my career might be 30 years long, but I also have to make sure that my students are successful on two to five year timescales as well. So yeah, figuring out the right um, set of variables to look at is really important that we can look at in the laboratory over that period of time. So with the jerosite experiments, um, we started off really simple. And our first experiments were literally just taking um, ultra-pure water, which is water that's been filtered a lot so it doesn't have a whole lot of other stuff in it, um, and reacting it with the jerosite and looking at the effect of pH, so the activity of the hydrogen ions in that um, water and how that affected the rate of jerosite dissolution. Um, so 
an undergraduate and I actually completed those experiments over a series of about three years. Um, and we did it over a range of pH from, I think, pH like 1 to maybe 12. I can't remember exactly. But we did a series of, I think, probably 50 experiments. Um, and each experiment only actually takes maybe two to three days at the most because the gerocyte does dissolve so fast. Um, so basically what we do is we'd, t we'd mix up water, we'd take water, um, and then we'd add um, e either um, sulfuric acid or hydrochloric acid or um, sodium <coughs> hydroxide. Okay, so we adjust the pH of the system, and sometimes we add in a buffer so that it maintains the same pH throughout the experiment. Sometimes we didn't, and we let the pH change and adjust as the experiment progressed. Um, and we basically measured how much um, potassium was released from the gerocyte as it's dissolving, because the gerocyte is made out of potassium, iron, and sulfate. Um, and then we measured that potassium in solution over time, and we could measure the dissolution rate of the gerocyte. Um, and then we can do some modeling to look at if we had a particle of a particular size, like a one micron gerocyte particle, how long that would last in water of that particular pH. So we started off with those really simple experiments with just water of different pHs, and we developed a numerical model for how pH affects gerocyte dissolution rates, and that's what's called a rate law. Um, and then after those initial experiments, we then um, decided to make it the system a little bit more complicated <laughs> by adding salts <laughs> to the system. So I had a master's student um, who worked on measuring gerocyte dissolution rates in sodium chloride and calcium chloride salts, so really very, very salty systems, like near saturated. Um, and she found that gerocyte dissolution rates slow down as the activity of water. So as you add salt to a solution, you start basically distracting the water molecules so that they're less reactive. Water molecules are going to associate themselves with those other ions in solution, and they're going to be less likely basically to attack the gerocyte. But we found that in the calcium chloride brine experiments, the um, sulfate that was coming out of the gerocyte reacted with the calcium that was in the brine to form gypsum or anhydrite, depending on the conditions of the experiment. And by basically taking the calcium and the sulfate out of solution, so we're removing it from solution by precipitating out gypsum or anhydrite, we leave these chloride ions in solution, and those chloride ions actually accelerated the rate of gerocyte dissolution by going in, and now they're basically unpaired ions that need something to pair with, so they go in and they pull the iron out of the gerocyte, and we actually saw the dissolution rates increased in these high salinity calcium chloride brines, and we've noticed that with some other minerals as well recently. Um, so we start by just looking at a very simple set of variables, and then we try to start adjusting them one variable at a time. So the first variable that we looked at was pH. Then we looked at salinity and activity of water and anions. Um, we also looked at temperature. Um, now we're looking at um, a wide range of anions, so chloride and sulfate and perchlorate. Um, and in the future, we may look at phosphate and nitrate and some of these other things as well. Uh, so when you're picking these flavors of water, I mean, I'm guessing, although 
it'd be interesting just to see what's out there. But are these based on things that, you know, Opportunity or the other rovers have seen on Mars? Is that where you're sort of setting up your initial conditions? Yeah, so there's lots of evidence that there's chloride and sulfate salts on the surface of Mars. And we get that both from the rovers and from um, the orbiting spectrometers that are on the orbiters. Um, So we have definite evidence that there's a lot of, well, you know, a few weight percent chlorine and sulfur in the sediments that um, Opportunity looked at and now again that um, Curiosity has found. Um, In Gale Crater, Spirit also found high concentrations of chlorine and sulfur. So we know that those salts are there on the surface of Mars. We're not exactly sure what the species of the salts are in some cases, um, like what particular minerals are there, but we know that the minerals are there. And then we also see these widespread um, sulfate deposits um, with the um, orbiting spectrometers as well. So are these things that you can also look at on the, in the field here on Earth? You can go find them. You see basalt, which we have quite a bit of. So is, are there ways that you can go do field studies to try to scale this to Mars and to your lab experiments? Um, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> yes, we have a lot of basalt on Mars. A, 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 lot, a lot of basalt on Mars. We also have a lot of basalt on Earth. Um, what we don't necessarily have is basalt in very salty systems. Okay, so where basalt is reacting with these high salinity brines, because high salinity brines are not actually that um, pervasive on the surface of Earth because we actually have quite a bit of water. So even in really dry places like the Atacama or in um, Antarctica, um, we either have not enough water to make a brine that sticks around for very long (laughs) or other places where we do have a lot of water, we just don't see these kind of high salinity systems forming. So um, we have there have been a wide range of studies that have looked at basalt reacting with seawater, right? Because that's happening all over the place because the ocean bottom is made out of basalt, right? And it's interacting with seawater all over the place. Um, but the brines that we're looking at are basically 10 times more concentrated at least than seawater. Um, so there aren't very good um, kind of terrestrial analog sites for those really high salinity brines reacting with basalt. So, so would these brines be on par with uh, wastewater brines from natural uh, gas and resource extraction? Um, way more concentrated than that. So, oh, wow. so, okay. so we're talking wow. about like near saturated. So like um, I just have a student downstairs making a sodium, a near saturated sodium chloride brine. That's 33 weight percent salt. So that means that in your bottle, a third of the mass is salt. And if you're making a <laughs> calcium chloride brine that's near saturated, 50% of the mass in that bottle is salt. Yeah. Wow. wow that's yeah, <laughs> that's way saltier than I thought. <laughs> okay, so you're saying that uh, desalinization on Mars is going to be really expensive. <laughs> well, and, and the reason that we're using these really saturated brines is because we think for um, probably, you know, the last at least 2 billion years of Mars history, that the surface has been really dry and cold. So if we're gonna get liquid water at the surface, it's gonna form um, from basically melting of ice. And the first ice that's gonna melt is gonna be the 
ice that's in contact with salts because the salts lower the freezing temperature and lower the vapor pressure of the water. So like a calcium chloride brine can be a liquid at, let's see, minus 50 degrees centigrade, so 220K. Or a saturated sodium chloride brine can be liquid at minus 23 degrees centigrade, so at about 250K. So if we're going to have liquid water on the surface of Mars, it's probably going to be really salty. So what about during the time when there, there was liquid water at the surface of Mars and it might have been doing some of these interactions? Temperature-wise, do we have any idea of what was going on then? Um, so there's a fairly good amount of evidence that there's liquid water on the surface of Mars today um, based on vapor um, water vapor pressure measurements um, from Gale Crater, um, that there's seasonal variability in the water vapor um, within Gale Crater, and that's suggesting that somewhere nearby that water vapor is being buffered by a brine, like okay. what we're talking about here. Um, so modern Mars probably does have liquid water somewhere near the surface. It's not probably super abundant, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but, but there is evidence that liquid water has been um, operating there relatively recently. There's also these um, recurring slope lineae, which are kind of these slope streaks that they observe that form seasonally on the edge of crater walls. Some people think that those are basically brine seeps. Other people think that, no, that sublimation of ice that's just um, basically um, disturbing sediment and making a dry... Um, kind of landslide type feature, mini landslide type feature. So that's kind of, the jury's still out on that. But the water vapor measurements from Gale Crater definitely suggest that there is liquid water somewhere near the surface. Now, going back three billion years <laughs> to the time when we have evidence that there were channels forming, like what we would consider more normal um, river channels on Mars, um, we don't really know exactly what the temperature and pressure conditions were during that time. Um, it could be that we had kind of seasonal or maybe even catastrophic outflow events um, where temperatures were still cold, but maybe a volcanic eruption or a magma movement or some sort of impact event caused um, local melting that then resulted in um, a large outflow of water to make channels. Or maybe in some situations there is evidence that these channels are actually precipitation driven, so basically runoff driven, that there was rain on Mars, um, kind of similar to what um, we would expect here on Earth today. So, but we don't really have very good controls about what the temperature and atmospheric pressure were during those time periods. So when you talk about Mars on the surface, you just said that, you know, there's a lot of basalt on Mars, but one of those evidences for flowing water on the surface comes from the sedimentary rock too, right? Right. Yep. Yeah. So Gale Crater so, is basically a lake deposit of sediments, and that's why they <laughs> sent Curiosity there. Yeah. So the basalts have been weathering over some period of time, and they do create sediments that then get transported. And a lot of the recent missions, including Opportunity and Curiosity, have specifically targeted kind of these sedimentary rock deposits because that's where we're going to see um, the climate history and perhaps the astrobiological history of Mars preserved, right? You wouldn't go to a 
to a lava flow to look for climate and biology history, right? Um, <laughs> so, so that's a little bit of, um, what do you call it? Um, sample bias, right? That, that we're targeting <laughs> particular places because there are sedimentary rocks there, but most of the surface of Mars is covered with igneous rocks. That's my kind of sample bias, I'll say. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, it sounds like Mars has an hydrologic cycle and maybe even a rock cycle like we do here on Earth. Yeah. <laughs> what? Well, I mean, that's a, uh, yeah, I guess I don't know a lot about the plate tectonics of Mars. Well, there's quite a bit of discussion as to whether or not early Mars, so like within the first billion years of Mars history, if there was active plate tectonics during that early period of Mars. Um, there's no evidence for plate tectonics as we think of it um, within the last three billion years on Mars. There's definitely evidence of volcanism um, and kind of upwelling and forming large volcanoes, but there's no evidence of subduction. So the way we have our rock cycle here on Earth, right, is that you have igneous rocks that erode to form sediments, and then those sediments are subducted, let's say, and get metamorphosed or um, get involved in some sort of collisional event and get metamorphosed. And then over time, those, those metamorphic rocks are re-uplifted and eroded again, right? That's kind of the simple model. Um, what we don't see on Mars is evidence for that subduction and burial other than just adding more sediments or igneous rocks on top. We don't see evidence for that uplift and recycling. So I, I think we'll know more about this relatively soon when we get a, another active seismometer on the planet. But as, as a related question, what do we think about the, the level of differentiation of Mars? So Mars is pretty much just as differentiated as Earth is. <laughs> um, uh, the, the difference is this recycling, right? That we don't right. have necessarily continental crust the same way we do here on Earth. Because in order to get continental crust on Earth, we need to have partial melting of oceanic crust. And we don't necessarily see that there's a whole lot of evidence for that on Mars. There are some rocks on Mars, though, that are much more silica rich than we would expect. Um, so that has kind of rekindled this idea that maybe there is some of this further differentiation beyond just um, what we would consider basaltic oceanic crust. Hmm. And But we do see some definite uh, regions of different surface expressions on Mars, though, right? We've divided it up into, uh, I believe, some, some named regions even. Right. Um, a lot of those are age-based. Um, so we have, you know, the cratered highlands in the south, um, and then the, the, the Amazonian plains in the north um, and the Noachian um, kind of in the middle region. <laughs> um, but a lot of that is based on crater counting. So we don't we only have kind of radiometric age dates from Mars meteorites. And then also um, actually Curiosity has been able to do a little bit of radiometric age dating as well. Um, just on a few samples, um, my colleague. Um, Barb Cohen has kind of been working on that. And she um, developed this technique to basically use the instruments on the rover, even though they weren't designed to do radiometric age dating, to kind of be able to tease out that data. Um, so we only have 
in situ radiometric ages from just a couple rocks on Mars. So the rest of it has to be based off of these crater counts. So you can think of it like a surface that's exposed to space. If we have a constant rate of um, impacts that a surface that has been exposed to space for longer is going to have more impacts. So um, the number of impacts correlates to the age, basically. Um, so that's, that's how we have divided up the geology of Mars, basically, is based on crater counts mostly. So how hard is it if Mars has these basalts and sedimentary rocks to identify Martian meteorites versus just Earth rocks? Um, identifying Martian meteorites is much harder than identifying kind of the run-of-the-mill meteorite. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Um, so you have to have lots of evidence, first of all, that it is indeed a meteorite and not just a rock from Earth, um, because we do have basalts on Earth that look a lot like basalts from Mars. Um, and then, so if you have evidence that it is actually a meteorite, like that you observed it falling from the sky, or <laughs> um, you find it on the surface of Earth and it has a fusion crust on the outside of it, so that's where as the rock is traveling through our atmosphere, it gets heated up um, by the friction of kind of the air breaking, right, that happens in the atmosphere. And that ablates the surface and you get this basically thin layer of glass that forms around the outside. Um, so if you have a fusion crust on it, then that's gonna help you identify it as a meteorite as well. Um, and then, so if, even if it is a basaltic meteorite, that doesn't necessarily mean it's from Mars either. Um, it could be from another differentiated body in the solar system. Um, so it could come from a larger asteroid that's dis differentiated, or it could come from the moon even. We have meteorites from the moon that are made out of basalt. Um, so the way that they've identified um, meteorites from Mars is looking at the isotopic composition of little teeny tiny um, bubbles that are trapped in the impactite. So the impactite is the the rock that forms during an impact event. So most rocks that come from other planets, well, all rocks that come from other planets are ejected through impact processes. <laughs> um, and so during that impact event, oftentimes the rock will slightly melt because again of that frictional heating. And as it's being ejected from the Mars atmosphere, that, that magma that's basically formed in little teeny tiny veins in the meteorite traps some of the atmosphere as it's leaving Mars. And so we can look at the atmospheric composition trapped within those little bubbles and the isotopic composition of the atmosphere trapped within those little bubbles and match it back to Mars. So it's really awesome that we can do that with science. Um, and it wasn't until the late um, until basically the 1990s that we were able to do that and definitively say that this rock came from Mars. It, the, the number of coincidences that have to happen for an impact event to happen, a rock to be ejected, it to intercept Earth, and then for us to find it, it's amazing that we have these things. It's really amazing that we can identify them. That's <laughs> yeah, and yes. it's also amazing that there are whole teams of scientists that go down to Antarctica every year and scour the ice looking for these meteorites to help us learn more about different planetary bodies in the solar system. Um, 
And there are also teams that scour the outback in Australia or the deserts in North Africa looking for these meteorites because they really are precious scientific data that help us learn more about our solar system. Um, and it's really amazing that we have this delivery of samples. It's a bit of a puzzle trying to figure out which sample came from where, um, but it is pretty amazing that we have these samples and that we have made it so far, actually, in deciphering the puzzle of where many of these rocks came from. Yeah, looking back at, you know, the, in retrospect, it's, the pieces fit and it makes sense, but making those conclusions for the first time is phenomenally amazing and complicated. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, and it's really exciting that I think it was maybe five, six years ago, we have basically what's probably the first sedimentary meteorite um, that came from Mars. Um, so that's pretty cool, too. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's amazing that that could hold together and make it here. That's what kind of blows my mind, yeah. thinking about that one yeah. particular meteorite. Like, that's that's some amazing cement. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> Um, so if we talk about, and this is sort of just to include all of Mars, um, you know, you've got to get these rocks off of it. I mean, what, what does Mars's atmosphere look like? So Mars's atmosphere is about a thousand times more like lower pressure than our atmosphere. So if you take, took the air in the room and you divided it into a thousand pieces and you got rid of 999 of them, that's how much atmospheric pressure we would have left <laughs> um, on the surface of Mars. Um, and that okay. that atmosphere is made out of carbon dioxide, um, nitrogen, argon, um, and a little bit of oxygen. Um, it turns out that there's also trace amounts of methane in that atmosphere, which is really exciting from an astrobiology perspective. Um, and it's still very puzzling where that methane is coming from. Right, because our initial atmosphere had a lot of methane too from all these methanogenic bacteria, right? Right, but then as soon as our atmosphere became oxygenated, right, during mm -hmm. um, the photosynthesis revolution, um, the concentration of methane in the atmosphere decreased significantly, right? If we have methane that's mm -hmm. released into our atmosphere now, it oxidizes fairly quickly to form CO2. Um, right. The same process is going to happen on Mars. Any methane that's released into the atmosphere is going to get oxidized to form CO2. And in fact, it probably will be oxidized faster because there's a lot more UV flux um, to the surface of Mars. So there's a lot more of these um, photolytic reactions that are happening on Mars um, because they don't have an ozone layer to block out some of that UV. Um, so any methane that's currently in the Mars atmosphere has to be coming from an active source. So there's something that's providing the methane to the atmosphere, whether that's, um, you know, really old methane that's leaking out of um, kind of partially sealed reservoirs or whether there's active um, methanogenesis that's happening by microbial communities um, in the subsurface or whether it's volcanic methane that's coming out of kind of hydrothermal volcanic seeps, it's it's unclear. Hmm. And so since the atmosphere, since there is an atmosphere, even though it's only a few hundred pascals, I mean, we use it to do things like slow our spacecraft down that are entering, right. though rather right. inefficiently. Uh, that also means that there can be 
some pretty large dust storms and dust devils and things. Is there significant weathering from those kind of things when you're looking at the sedimentary structures? Yeah, so if we find rocks on the surface of Mars, oftentimes they look, um, they've been shaped by, by, um, by the abrasion of sediments um, basically pounding against them. But because the atmospheric pressure is significantly lower, <laughs> it takes a lot more time and a lot more abrasion, a lot more particles hitting those sediments, uh, those rocks to get that abrasion pattern. Um, just because the uh, the density of the fluid that's transporting the sediments is a lot lower. Right. Yeah. You can't, definitely couldn't transfer near as much energy, but you still do see. So uh, would they be classified as ventifacts then? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just longer time scale, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but because we don't have, you know, active uplift, the rocks get to sit around a whole lot longer, too. So, Right. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> so one of the other uh, things that you've worked on on Mars is the different gas hydrates that mm-hmm. can form on Mars. Is there uh, – well, what types of gas hydrates are there and what, what exactly are they in the, in the Mars system? Because they, they are a mineral just like ice, right? Right. Yeah. So one of the interesting things is that there we don't actually have direct evidence that there are gas hydrates anywhere else in the solar system except on Earth. We have not observed (laughs) gas hydrates anywhere else except on Earth. Um, It's the thermodynamic stability of the gas hydrates would suggest that they are likely present on other um, solar system bodies. Um, So the pressure and temperature conditions on Mars are um, very good. Um, they fall within the stability range of um, carbon dioxide and methane and um, hydrogen sulfide gas hydrates. Um, so we would expect them to be there, but we haven't ever actually observed them um, on Mars. The one place where we may have some more direct evidence of gas hydrates in the solar system is actually in, on Ceres. Um, where there's been kind of this brittle deformation of the surface that doesn't really fit with ice, um, and clathrates or hydrates are much more brittle than ice. Um, so on Ceres, we may be beginning to see the first direct signs of gas hydrates in the solar system. So I think there's actually somebody here who knows a whole lot more about gas hydrates <laughs> on Mars than I do, and I believe that's you, John. So why don't you tell us about uh, your experiments? <laughs> I don't know about that. So I, I did uh, some work with, with you and, and other folks uh, looking at both experimental gas hydrates and doing some modeling, uh, some relatively straightforward modeling of stability of gas hydrates with relation to maybe some of the methane plumes, the seasonal methane plumes that you've seen. Where in the stability range temperature-wise uh, could we explain these methane plumes with hydrate uh, dissolving or melting, as you could say, and the, the, the methane being evolved from it? But that's not the only type of hydrate that there is, is methane hydrate. You mentioned CO2, which could be present at the poles in significant quantities as well, right? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of places that we could expect to see um, methane hydrate on Mars. So in the ice caps, in the permafrost, um, there was actually one paper recently that suggested that there were these little clathrate nanoparticles floating around in the atmosphere. Um, I don't think that's very likely, but... um, there's lots of ideas out there about how clathrates could be um, a major reservoir for gases like methane and CO2 on Mars, um, as well as reservoirs for water. Um, so that's it's it's exciting to see 
um, the methane in the atmosphere and think about how that may be um, related to methane hydrates and other materials that could be storing and releasing the methane. Yeah, because hydrates are still something that I would say we we have a a grasp on their thermodynamics, but definitely don't know <laughs> the, the full story uh, <laughs> in terms of modeling their, their stability in places like this. Yeah, I think one place that there's lots of interest in hydrates right now is um, looking at volatiles throughout the solar system and looking at the volatile budgets as the solar system was condensing. So like, how do we get water on Earth? How do we get um, all this um, sulfur on Mars? Um, and one way that we could do that is through um, basically uh, comets delivering volatiles. And whether those comets are made out of just water ice or whether those comets are made out of clathrates or a mixture of the two um, can determine, you know, the different ratios of different volatiles that are delivered to different planetary bodies. Hmm. So it seems like through talking about this, Mars is probably the solar system body that is most similar to Earth. Would you say that's a, a fair statement? Yeah. Um, I think some people <laughs> would argue that Titan is also pretty similar to Earth in that mm -hmm, Titan has mm -hmm. an active... Um, fluid cycle now, right? That we're right, seeing yep. evidence of erosion and um, precipitation um, and burial on Titan today. So um, it depends on what you mean by most similar. If you mean it process-wise, then Titan might actually be closer today. Um, mm -hmm. If you mm -hmm. mean okay. by based on materials, then um, Mars is probably pretty close. I think it's real interesting because a lot of the stuff we're talking about is kind of new science about Mars and saying, oh, this looks like Earth or things like this. But, I mean, Mars has always been, I'm thinking about science fiction, you know, the thing that it's like, okay, well, this is our this is our next step. And I find it interesting that those parallels are still there today because I don't know about you. I don't really want to get caught in hydrocarbon rain on Titan, so <laughs> yeah. maybe I'll go to Mars instead. <laughs> Yeah, I mean Mars would definitely be the most livable planet. If we had to go somewhere yeah. else, Mars would be the would be the place to go. So, what are some of the the new either new data that are going to be coming out or new technologies, be they space-based or laboratory-based that you're most excited about and that you you want to implement in your work? Yeah, so there's this paper that just came out last week in Science about these organic molecules that were discovered in the sediments at Gale Crater, and that's just super exciting um, science, um, trying to figure out where these organic molecules are coming from, if they've been delivered by meteorites, if they're um, old organics that were formed um, long ago, or whether they're you know evidence of microbial communities, that's going to be really exciting to follow. Um, I'm also really excited about the next two Mars rovers, um, the Mars 2020 rover um, in particular, because both of the, the next two rovers, both the NASA rover and the ESA rover, are going to have Raman um, spectrometers on board, and that's a technique that I use in my laboratory. Um, Raman is really cool. It, basically, you shoot your sample with a laser, and the laser causes the um, covalent bonds in your sample to start vibrating, and those vibrating bonds form new light that has a different um, frequency than the laser light that you put in. Um, so you get um, a particular fingerprint for different materials based on um, the Raman spectra that's produced. 
Um, so we can use that technique to look at solids, liquids, and gases. And so I think that's really exciting that if we were to find liquid water on Mars, be it a brine or something else, um, that we could actually begin to analyze it with um, the Raman that's going to be on the Mars 2020 rover. You said the magic word on the show. Lasers and high-speed cameras are both bingo words for every <laughs> yeah. episode. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm glad I won. Yeah. So. <laughs> and Isis are minerals. She is uh, killing it. Today. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what can Mars teach us in general about, about the solar system? Why should we be funding missions to Mars? I think Mars can tell us a lot about what early Earth looked like and what types of processes we might be seeing, um, we might have expected to see on the surface of Earth before um, biology took over, <laughs> right? Um, so, uh, Shannon, you're a field geologist. You know that plants get in the way all the time, right? I mean, oh, amen. Right? That's my first thing. We go to the Southwest because there's no plants to get in the way of the right? rocks. Right? I mean, so the biology, it, it, biology has a significant impact on geology on Earth, and it has for probably the last three billion years. Um, so by going to Mars, we can get some sort of glimpse of what early Earth might have looked like without. Um, you know, I don't want to say biology getting in the way, but um, <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> um, but then the other thing is that we can also look at if there is biology on Mars, it hasn't made it to the point that it has here on Earth, um, obviously. And par part of that is just because of energy um, limitations um, and water limitations, probably. Um, so we can look at um, the effect one of the reasons that we spend so much time looking at Mars is trying to learn about how um, life gets started on a planet and then how life evolves on a planet and then how life affects the planet. Um, and I think Mars is a good comparison with Earth from that perspective. Whether or not there ever was life on Mars or whether there is life on Mars today, it's still a good comparison with Earth um, to see different trajectories, basically. Um, from a more solar system-wide perspective, um, I think Mars is an interesting case study as to whether or not there was plate tectonics on Mars. Do you need a body of a significant of a certain size to get plate tectonics? Do you need a body of a particular um, composition to get plate tectonics? Why does Earth have plate tectonics and Mars doesn't today? and whether Mars did have plate tectonics in the past um, and when that plate tectonics may have shut off um, is all really interesting. Same thing with internal geodynamos. Um, there's some evidence that early Mars had a geodynamo, so it had a magnetic field, but it doesn't anymore. Um, so learning about how these different processes evolve through time um, on Mars could be really important to learning more about kind of fundamental solar system processes. Hmm. That's, that's an excellent point. I hadn't thought about the Earth minus the, the main biology aspect right. of, of being able to look at it. Yeah. And Shannon, it doesn't sound like there's going to be a job for a, a paleomagnetist. 
<laughs> hey, there could be some ancient remnant magnetizations. There's a lot of talk about that. That's fine. I look at those too. Yeah, I think that that's <laughs> but every- actually really interesting. Like looking at those, if we could get a sample of those really, really old rocks on Mars um, mm-hmm. and figure out if there really was a, a magnetic field and a geodynamo at the earliest stages of Mars history, that would be really fascinating. Right. Right, because you can look at paleo intensities of that magnetic field and learn a lot about, you know, rotation parameters and differentiation and things, too. Yeah. No, that would be totally cool. That would have had some pretty interesting implications, I suppose, too, for uh, magnetic field helping protect any early biologics or anything like that. Yep, exactly. Yep. Exactly. Uh, Every day of field camp, I curse the cacti, so I'm ready to go to Mars. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) There's excellent exposure. Yes. Yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, something we're asking everyone, Megan, uh, your planet of choice there is Mars. So if you're going to travel there and live there for a month, where would you go? What would you want to look at? Oh, I was thinking about this. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I am totally um, besmitten by um, (laughs) Valles Marineris. I mean, we go to the Grand Canyon here on Earth as geologists to see, like, this thick slice right of geologic time and it seems like Valles Marineris would be a place that we could go and see perhaps a thick slice of um, geologic time on Mars. Um, Gale Crater is totally fascinating but I feel like since there's already a rover there I want another data point and so um, (laughs) I think probably Valles Marineris and maybe some of the chasmas that are associated with Valles Marineris where we see evidence for sedimentary rocks um, would be a really fascinating place to go. Hmm. And a fascinating place to set up an Italian restaurant. But Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Mark Watney taught us we can grow potatoes, right? So You know that's the first thing that's going to happen. Like, when, when we get to Mars, like, just because of that book, that's the first <laughs> thing that we're going to do, right? Uh. So well, what do you think, though, and if you were able to go and start examining these sections – what would you what's the one question you'd really want to answer looking at those things like what what's the burning question that you've got I, I think my burning question is probably the same as many other Mars geologists as to what happened to change the climate from this period where we do see these active channels and um, evidence for precipitation and then it's shifted so that it's much drier Um, now. So what caused that climate shift? Um, And there are lots of working hypotheses for what caused that climate shift. Some of them um, involve things, you know, like shutting off that geodynamo so that we no longer have a magnetic field that's protecting the atmosphere from erosion. Um, Others involve, you know, big um, volcanic eruptions that lead to lots of um, sulfate in the atmosphere that aerosols basically that block out the sun so there there are lots of different hypotheses for what caused that shift in climate and i think it would be really interesting to go and try to do some field work to figure out what's happening there and and curiosity is doing some excellent field work there in gale crater trying to answer these questions as well and it'll be really interesting to see what the rover finds well we can hope that we'll have boots on the ground geology in our lifetimes yeah Yes, I, I, yes, we'll see. 
Maybe yeah. maybe Hazel will be the first geologist That's on Mars. Right. You never know. <laughs> she is gonna. They're gonna regret sending her there. She's gonna take over. <laughs> She'll do awesome. So, Megan, is there anything else that you would like to to add? Well, I just want to say how fantastic both of you are in, um, as scientists and as um, science communicators. And I really appreciate you inviting me to participate in this endeavor. It's been really fun. Well, thanks. We uh, didn't pay her to say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for uh, coming on the show. We really appreciate it. And if folks are interested in following uh, your research, how can they find you on the internet? Yeah, so I have a webpage. Um, if you just Google Megan Elwood Madden, there's only one of me in the world or in the solar system. So um, you can find me that way. All right. We will be sure to link that in the show notes. Megan, thanks for joining us. Thanks, John. Thanks, Shannon. Well, Shannon, as we as we already knew that Mars was a really interesting place, but I learned uh, quite a bit about the more recent discoveries on Mars. And I uh, yes, really enjoyed chatting absolutely. with Megan about it. Uh, I'm really scared about this whole organic thing that just got found. I, one more thing to fuel my nightmares, right? <laughs> that and the geoid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Why you got to bring that stuff up? <laughs> Speaking of nightmares, I feel like uh, this next paper also is right up my nightmare alley. <laughs> yeah, so it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. What was that? So that is a recording of a cowbell in Greece that listener Steve sent to us. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> and I, I thought it was a very uh, uh, melodic cowbell. It was. It was. It was a lot. Um, it's a nice change of pace. Yeah. <laughs> so now we have to have people not only sending us cowbells, but recordings of cowbells. So you can add that to the list of things that you can send into the show. <laughs> And uh, we'll tell you where um, after we talk about avalanche triggering by sound, myth and truth. Yeah, so this is a fun paper that was sent in by listener Dustin. And this is from the International Snow Science Workshop in 2009. Right. So this is a paper by Reuter and Schweitzer, like an extended abstract. Um, and... I mean, this is something that I always think about when I'm out in the mountains. Is somebody shouting going to trigger either an avalanche or a rock slide? And I was quite relieved by this paper, I guess I'll say. <laughs> yeah, so this paper does some modeling is a strong word, uh, but yeah. some numerical analysis, some scale analysis of different uh, sources of sound and what their effects can be on packed snow, which we need to have a whole episode on avalanches because the physics of avalanches and the physics of fault failure and earthquakes are very similar in related fields. Uh, I love it. I, I feel your Penn State showing through because <laughs> we've had a whole bunch of papers about avalanches and stuff, and you always bring up that point. So I know this is kind of near and dear to your heart. <laughs> As well. <laughs> right, but the cool thing about avalanches is you're working with a much more uh, compliant and less dense media than rock, and so smaller perturbations, perturbations that we can create as humans, can have significant influence. <laughs> uh, right, exactly. Um, it sounds like you know, not not shouting at them and just 
telling them to fall down is enough, but um, definitely other things. And so in here they investigated, you know, what are the things that can affect the snow at its surface and how will that work to destabilize a slab that will turn into an avalanche. And so they looked at, you know, a person shouting at the bottom of the slope because there are lots of apocryphal evidences of that, right? Um, and then also things like acoustic pressures due to helicopters, skiers, obviously that's one that definitely happens. And uh, aircraft just passing over, especially ones creating sonic booms. And then what we actually know creates avalanches, which is us shooting howitzers at the snowpack. Right. So big explosions. Uh, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And, you know, one of the things I wanted to point out early in this paper is when they talk about uh, sound sources, they have a definition of a sound wave that is the most complete and elegant definition of a sound wave I think I've ever read. <laughs> I have that flagged. I thought you would like so, that So well. <laughs> sound waves in air are longitudinal waves which arise from the alternate compression and expansion of air, which is the typical definition we hear, except we may say compression rarefaction or something. But then they add on mm-hmm. in rapid enough manner to be an adiabatic process. Yeah, that's nice. So adiabatic means that... Uh, Q or Q dot, I guess, is zero. So the change in energy in a air parcel is zero. If we take a a parcel of air and we compress it and we keep it compressed, we know it's going to warm up. Mm -hmm. And that would still be an adiabatic process, right? Because it's not interacting with its surroundings. But if you compress it and hold it there for long enough, then it's going to interact with air parcels around it and exchange energy. That's not adiabatic because you don't want to have this one little hot blob of air. So in a sound wave, these things are compressing and expanding rapidly enough that they don't have time to exchange any of the energy because when you speak, you do actually generate small amounts of heat from the compression. Mm -hmm. But it's so fast that no energy exchange happens, which that's a beautiful delineation. It made me happy. That, That is nice. I agree. Not what I learned in advanced music theory class, but yeah, it's good. Right. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so th- they do some development of uh, how waves propagate and how they interact with surfaces. This is Geophysics 101. Uh, mm-hmm. And they do point out, you know, well, here's, a, here's an equation for propagation. We can neglect this term if the frequencies are well below 10 to the ninth hertz, so uh, terahertz. Which mm-hmm. is, I mean, even microwaves, you know, they're 2.4 gigahertz. So they're right. Yeah, it's nothing we're going to be doing. Yeah. Right. And then uh, to neglect one of these terms, uh, they have to be higher than 10 to the minus 2 hertz. So 10 millihertz. They have to be higher than that, which okay. luckily for us, sound waves are 20 to 20,000 hertz. So we get to neglect a bunch of terms in this equation, and we always love that. (laughs) I know. When I was thinking about all the homework problems I've done and reading those two paragraphs, I'm like, yes, yes, throw them all out. (laughs) By scale analysis, I only have to do one division. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It's beautiful. (laughs) So they they, they do this uh, scale analysis. They eliminate some terms. Then they talk about, uh, you know, supersonic uh, booms have – these N-shaped pressure pulses, which you can't neglect quite as much. Uh, 
when you're doing that. <laughs> yeah. the, the the propagation and the attenuation of these N-shaped waves is a little funky. Uh, Mm-hmm. But what they come down to in the end is we can calculate what kind of force is exerted on a snowpack uh, on a snowpack from these uh, different amplitudes of sources. So a person screaming is two pascals. Uh, a supersonic boom would be about 200. Uh, in between there, you'd have just a, a jet passing overhead at about 20. And then you have mm-hmm. your howitzer, which is over 1,500 pascals. <laughs> Um, I thought this was cool when they were talking about aircraft, right? Because this seems, you know, high mountains, you've got aircraft right up there. Uh, they did kind of a cool experiment, or, well, they they did not. They talked about a cool experiment that was done in the late 70s about putting geophones in the snowpack right along flight paths. I thought that was kind of neat. Yeah, I mean, you know, now we're using all kinds of weird things as sources in geophysics, trains and all, all yeah. kinds of stuff. Uh yeah, sure, aircraft, and you can calculate based on the accelerations that are observed in the by the geophones. You can then integrate that and get uh, velocities, and based on that, you can mm-hmm. calculate what kind of force would have been put on the surface uh, during that time, and then back estimate what the the pressure wave was that caused that particular force. So it's a really nice mm-hmm. uh, chain of signal processing there. Yeah, I thought that was that was neat because they actually recorded some avalanches during their seven days of deployment as well. So, yeah, yeah. But I mean, they're doing the scale analysis. Basically, they're saying, yeah, howitzers work really well, but the rest of them, eh. Yeah, because what really did it for me is when they converted it into terms of power. So. Yeah. If you think about how much power is released during an avalanche, they don't have that number here. I would be willing to bet that it's in the range of megawatts. Yeah. Just mm-hmm. ballpark in the scale there. Uh, the typical human conversation that we're having right now is about 10 microwatts. Yeah, that's so tiny. And if you yell at the top of your lungs, that's two milliwatts. I would not have guessed that. I would have guessed it was a lot more. And that corresponds to only two pascals of pressure amplitude. Right. Like you said before. So that's, yeah, that's not much. Yeah, so it's not much power at all. And yes, small events can trigger large events. uh, But a a perturbation that's, you know, maybe up to 12 orders of magnitude below the event, that's a pretty hard sell. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I never would have guessed that. So the conclusion was uh, you can safely yell when you're out skiing. <laughs> but if you are uh, but if you uh, are skiing, which as you said that we do know that skiers indeed uh, do start avalanches, the dynamic right. stress from you skiing on a snowpack can be from 200 up to 1,200 pascals. So the force that you exert when you're taking your your nice turn and spraying snow up and trying not to wipe out, <laughs> that can be up to pretty close to the lower end of a howitzer. Yeah, that's impressive. I, I did not assume that there was that much, but I mean, I guess it makes sense. Now, again, pressure and power are different because you're exerting it on a much smaller area than the shockwave from an explosion. But but enough to right. to destabilize everything. Yeah. So 
This was a, a fascinating article. So thanks for sending that in, Dustin. And it uh, reminds me that we really need to talk about avalanches on the show. Yes, yes, we do. Uh, let's wait till it gets colder. I think that's more appropriate, right? Yeah, we'll wait until everybody's <laughs> out skiing to talk about avalanches. Yeah, yeah, just to, just to scare people. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> well, if you have a fun paper to send in, a recording of your favorite cowbell, or a Martian meteorite, we would love to have any of those. Shannon, how can they get a hold of the show? Uh, email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I am at Shannon Doolin. Uh, thank you to our Patreon supporters. And if you'd like to support us, you can go over and see us on patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeocast. Um, also, on the Slack chat room, I haven't been in there a lot because I'm out in the field, but I'm sure John and everyone else is talking up some great geoscience in there. We're in the software underground on the Don't Panic channel. Yeah, in fact, after our uh, very spherical object discussion last week, uh, Jarmos posted a paper in there that we're looking at the spherical rubidium vapor cell fabrication paper. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So <laughs> until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. 